And so I learned, while breaking into your house, that you, Joseph Fedorko, are content to spend your Sunday afternoons watching Cleveland Browns football games while a nation descends into chaos. A man of your achievements, playwright, professor, podcast producer, gourmet chef, should use your free time educating and inspiring your fellow Americans instead of following a historically beleaguered sports franchise. I'm beginning to wonder if your reputation as an advocate and activist for social justice is more illusion than reality. Before you get off that couch and start fulfilling your duty, do you have any questions? Yeah, I do, Dr. Nair. Why are you simultaneously getting in my face, kissing my ass, and blocking my TV? I'm a man of great contradictions, aren't I? Anyway, I'm giving you my version of the Johnson treatment. The Johnson treatment? Like uh, Linda Baines Johnson? Exactly. I've just written a book called Lyndon Johnson, An American Life, and I want to promote it on YouTube with a cooking video. Uh, help me out here. Johnson was famous for forging legislative compromises, a process which has been likened to sausage making. I'd like to film you making sausage while I make clever comparisons between judicial appointments and ground duck meat. Uh, tell you what, uh, during halftime, I'll make you a cheese ball. And why would I settle for a cheese ball? Professional courtesy. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 36, Lyndon Johnson. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it. And we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode and bring your friends so they can too. James. So this is uh, the audience at home. You guys don't know this, but we called this uh, podcast a very short notice. Uh, it was almost like uh, we got read the uh, oath of office for the podcast on Air Force One. I, this podcast very much resembles the Johnson administration. It's got a lot of the same folks as the last podcast. It may have been inevitable, but it happened a lot earlier than all of us were anticipating. So. <laughs> If, but if will I had it known, end in I disgrace. Uh... Yeah, well, it ended disgrace and bitterness and a wilting away. Uh, I will say no, it will not, because we will continue to the, go. The also, podcast. it tends to be a kind of mixed bag. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, actually, I want to talk about that for a second because something struck me as I was thinking about what we do in relation to LBJ. But first of all, hi. Talk I'm you like Joe. JFK's bullet. Something like that. Well, no, 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 no. Hold on. I'm Joe. Uh, Let's introduce just quick names. I'm Paul. Sandy. 
I'm Sylvia, and I would have worn a pink jacket if I knew we were going to make a uh, LBJ uh, joke about a quick <laughs> installation. Uh, oh, Ouch. I don't have a pillbox hat, so I can't swear, <laughs> James. <laughs> oh, I'm Patrick. Yay. <laughs> and our Americanists. I'm Chelsea. And I'm James. Okay, so so here's what struck me as I got this thing organized, one of the things we've always talked about is sort of what people grew up with versus kind of a new take on the presidents. And, you know, while most of us did not march into the Vietnam War, because I think a lot of us, when we think of LBJ, we think of, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And all of that. But in the last few years, there's been, I don't know if revisionism is the right angle, but there's certainly been a reassessment of the, the Grant Society and the civil rights bills, helped immensely by Brian Cranston playing LBJ and winning awards with a Broadway show's turned HBO movie. And if Brian Cranston is listening to us, we will take your recommendation and endorsement. And I can't really think of a more polar opposite to the point that... It, that LBJ might actually be getting some respectability? That was not going to happen during his lifetime. That's he why had... I made sure to die very shortly after leaving office. <laughs> <laughs> but he had an extremely outsized personality, which attracted about as much as it repelled. He was famous even before the presidency for giving people the Johnson treatment. Oh, yep. man. Yep. There are lots of apocryphal stories. So one of my favorites was actually recounted on C-SPAN by Doris Kearns Goodwin. So I feel like it's it's pretty truthful. So mm -hmm. what is it? Please tell it. Oh, that she like was very often invite talking to the president, you know, in his bedroom as he's getting ready to start his day. And then, oh, gotta use the toilet and he just expected you to come in with him and i guess once she oh i forgot who the person was but he was telling doris kearns goodwin about a senator who was who had been asked the same right continue talking to me as i am on the toilet come <laughs> and the gentleman was so embarrassed that he stood so far away and he stood with his back towards LBJ and LBJ is like trying to razz him a little bit. He's like, ah, come closer. I can't hear you. And instead of turning around and walking towards the president, he proceeds to back up and LBJ was like, I thought he was going to sit in my lap. <laughs> um, it was Stephen Douglas, he would have. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot that Doris Kurtz Boonen actually worked with LBJ. So Bill these are not. Answer, yeah. So did Bill, Bill Moyers was his speechwriter. So here's my apocryphal story that I was told Hunter S. Thompson first discovered. So take that what you will. It was supposed to be his first congressional campaign in, I believe, 1948. You know, longtime incumbent. And the story goes that Lyndon asked his aide to come in and begin a rumor that, and I will clean this up even though this is a podcast, that his opponent was fornicating with pigs. And his aide looked at him like, there ain't nobody going to believe that, Lyndon. To which Lyndon allegedly replied, 
Oh, I know nobody ain't going to believe it. I just want the son of a bitch to deny it. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like we need to apologize to our Texan listeners for that accent. Oh, God, yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So LBJ, he was not... He didn't exactly come from a political dynasty. He didn't come from a dynasty of any type, as I recall. I mean, he was a fairly prosperous ranch ranch family, and he was just kind of a born political animal. Just something that he liked yeah, to do. It's, it's almost hard to think of somebody who is, like, fits the description of the natural politician. Like, almost, you know, just no education, no social connections, just so naturally gifted at the art of politics that he'd simply rose by the virtue of his own force of will. What do we mean by the the art of politics, if I might ask? So, I I mean, I think we mean some of the things that we're just describing. He knew how to paint his opponents in in an ugly light. He knew how to play the dirty game. Uh, He also knew how to rally support. He knew how to demand loyalty. He knew how to call the right people and make the right allies at the right time. He he seemed to be able time and again in a way that I really think I can't think of many other modern politicians have been able to do to find the winning coalition when he needed to. And and even if if it wasn't quite a winning coalition, uh, you know, he could call the right people and make it a winning coalition. That and that I think was his, his, his main natural skill. Interesting. Okay. A born networker, would you say, or did you just have insight into the people whom he was cajoling into succumbing to his will? I think there was a there's a combination of insight and shamelessness that maybe Johnson mean. wasn't afraid to go there because maybe he didn't didn't feel bound by the same rules of polite society that some of his colleagues were. Um, and then the insight to know where to go to put people on the back foot and make them feel humiliated, ashamed, uh, or scared, and then feel like, all right, I better support this guy. Cause, cause you know, he's got his, uh, his knife where my neck is. Yeah. His force uh, of will was just as big as his personality. And I think it really makes him a very compelling, um, person to have on your side and a very compelling foe as well. <laughs> You know, another apocryphal story is the scar. That he had a scar on his, like, kind of on his, like, abdomen. I, or it was a scar or Burkmarth, And he would not be afraid to show it off, particularly in the Senate cloakroom, again, because I don't recall any anybody in American history that we've been talking about that, again, would resort to physical intimidation like LBJ would. Yeah, there's definitely there's a Jacksonian tendency in Johnson. With with Teddy, he wouldn't have to because his reputation precedes him. Yes. But but Andrew Jackson was sort of crazy. Like this guy will this guy will whack you. Lyndon Johnson, again, he's just fit he's just it's like having an offense. I mean, it's sort of like having uh, 
a a a, a four a, you know a four forward you know a power forward looming over you like yeah take a swing at him dare you you know like, and it is true guys, that you know what i want so badly would you how much money would you pay to see lyndon johnson and andrew jackson in like an mma battle and teddy roosevelt <laughs> is the referee that would be interesting <laughs> teddy would jump well, in here's the thing if it's no weapons i got my money on johnson me too because because jackson you know he's a wiry guy he, he'll fight dirty but like if he doesn't get to stab you i think that takes away a lot of his uh yes mm-hmm. his yeah technique. he was creaking you johnson is perhaps the one of the last politicians we read about in terms of using his physical stature to intimidate like his near colleagues um you, you know perhaps I, I, there, I, I, I don't know that i've read a whole lot of that outside of you know some of the sexual harassment stuff but i, I think clinton there's a little bit of that to clinton as well Certainly, it seemed like I don't. I just maybe this is because I was a kid, but I remember when he would come in for the State of the Union. It seemed like he was always flanked by like the three shortest cabinet members, you know, <laughs> especially Madeleine Albright. And then there was Bill Clinton looking twice as tall as all. <laughs> like, what's going on here? It's it's, it's Snow uh, White, maybe, Seven Dwarves. Maybe it's a but, good old boy thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a southern thing about that. y'all all right everyone try to keep things to a dull roar and let's get started my name is john henry call me jh because it's shorter we're all happy you're here at the lyndon b johnson school of political persuasion this here's the workshop on how to lobby and win for your side today we're gonna go uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry but uh, is, is there a powerpoint we can follow uh whenever i've been to lobbying workshops the democratic party puts on they have PowerPoints and handouts and, and websites. And- I know all about them Democratic Party lobbying workshops. And let me ask you something, son. How many Democratic Party workshops you've been to? Uh, Fourteen. Ooh. And how many bills have you passed after taking all them workshops? Uh, well, exactly um- my point. We do not have pretty handouts or PowerPoints. We teach you to win like our namesake LBJ did. Y'all ready to finally win? Let's do it. I'm more of a visual learner. Oh, hell yeah. Well then, young lady, may I ask you to come up to the front of the room for our first demonstration of LBJ-style political persuasive techniques? I'd be honored. My name's Jade. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm part of the National Clean Energy Coalition. Oh, well, very nice. People don't know, but LBJ was concerned about our air and water. His dearest wife, Ladybird came up with the idea of companies adopting freeways to pick up litter and whatnot. That's cool. <laughs> we sure think so. Anyway, here's the first scenario. You have part of the Green New Deal you want to see passed, but you have a Democrat kind of wavering on his or her own support. Oh, boy, you got that right. So say I'm one of them shaky dams. How are you going to get me to say yes and get a win for the Green New Deal? Well... I'll show you all the statistics about how much air is going to be cleaned and how many jobs are going to be created and how your grandchildren will have a world to be a part of and how many studies whoa, whoa, there are. Whoa, there, darling. You're saying a mouthful. I know you got all the facts on your side. Hell, we all know that. But rattling them off over and over and over ain't going to do it. You'd already got your yes if that were the case, right? Yeah. Okay, now let's reverse the roles, okay? You be the legislator. I'll be you, 
and I'll demonstrate one of the tactics LBJ used to get to yes and to win. Y'all watching? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, all righty, let's go. <clears throat> so, look, about that vote. I, what? Oh, my God, what are you doing? Well, what's it look like I'm doing? I'm showing you a tattoo of my Gaia symbol here on the right side of my belly while getting somewhat physically close to you while doing so. Whoa. Uh -huh. yeah, put your shirt back on, sir. Oh, this here's one of your visual learning points, son. That is one of LBJ's persuasive techniques. Oh, sure is. LBJ was a much larger man than most, and being willing to do what needed to be done to win, that included using physical attributes at close proximity in order to maintain a sense of authority and instill a touch of shock to work in your favor. And that was supposed to be persuasive? Honey, you think the Clean Air Act passed because Lyndon showed off his research? I... Man. You do have a Gaia tattoo on your person, now, don't you? Well, uh, yeah, of course, but it's in a rather private area. I think you get my point. Wow. That's a lot for the cause. No, ma'am, that's a lot to win. And to help your cause, you do what you gotta do. Now, let's move on to our second lesson, location. Uh, son, can you assist me? I'm a little uncomfortable with you calling me son. Call it a uh, Texas honorific. Uh, who are you and what you working on? Uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, he him is. Uh, I work with single payer or death pack. All right, all right. Uh, question. When you do your lobbying for your single payer death pack. Uh, single payer or death. I stand corrected. Now, where do you talk to these recalcitrant politicians? Wherever I can corner them. Not that it's helped. Wherever? Really? Mm-hmm. Let me ask, you ever follow him into the shitter? The what? Oh, I'm sorry there. The toilet? Uh, no. Well, then you really aren't following them everywhere. Uh, talking to someone who's taking a... Uh, <laughs> it's called a dump, son. And yeah, LBJ did that all the damn time. And it made sense. You're in the John, you ain't going anywhere till you finish your business, and neither is anybody else. So take advantage of the situation. And don't just say you follow them everywhere. Do it. And win. I, uh, I have to admit, trapping Joe Manchin in a stall kind of has its appeal. And you won't find that in the PowerPoint. All right, now we got one more scenario. Uh, how about you, ma'am? My name is Jasmine. She, her, hers, but ready to make it win, win, win. I am the legislative liaison for the Renew the Voting Rights Act Alliance. And believe me, we are ready to do anything. Well, hot damn. So let's talk campaigning. You have people you want to get out of office that are blocking your agenda, do you not? You have no idea. I bet I do. But what do you do to get them on your side? We organize, we get voters to register, we sit in and protest when we have to. All excellent options. But what if they don't work? That's why I'm here. Hmm, I'll tell you what you should do. You should use one of LBJ's tried and true tactics, the threat. LBJ always knew everything about his enemies and even more about his friends. He'd not be afraid to use what he knew to get a yes. Mm, such as? Well, there's always personal foibles that can be aired to certain media members. But, uh, but isn't that unethical? Hush, such as? 
Well, hey, son, this workshop's on persuasion now, not playing nice. Uh, but, but we may need those people for future legislation. Do y'all want to sit around and sing We Are the World? Or do you want to get shit done? Oh, Jesus, well, I'll tell you what. Y'all cock us up, come up with the answer to that, and when you're ready to really get your hands dirty, you come and get me. I'll be in my office, in the shitter. So are you going to go in there? Oh, shove your PowerPoints. Let's talk about winning. Oh, I'm coming with you. What's wrong with my PowerPoints? And I think, I think this gets to a conversation that we've had quite a bit in this podcast, right, about legacy. And I think he understood. So I, I think Johnson is really character, characterized by two forces, right? Ambition, right? He's extremely ambitious uh, to, once he gets into politics, to continue rising, to become president, and then to be the, the best president that he could possibly be. Um, so I think ambition, we really have to acknowledge that he's very ambitious to the point that he's not going to let principle or ideology or people get in his way. <clears throat> and, but I think the other thing is once he ascends to that highest office, he's very conscious of legacy, right? And how he's going mm-hmm. to be remembered by historians and the masses and it's, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the famous George Wallace story, you know, how do you want to be remembered? He, he asks that question because that's the question that's on his mind at all times, too. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about his ascension. Because, um, again, with some of the people we've talked about here, and for those of you that are listening and just coming to us, hey, we have all these other presidents you can talk about. One of whom was Teddy Roosevelt. And boy, you have a lot of these sort of contradictions and grandeur and personal history and a little bit of myth making, although I get the sense with LBJ's Jay's circumstance, the whatever myth came from the actual work that he did. So let's, oh yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit. So you know, I've mentioned a story about his first congressional campaign and sort of this literally a guy that kind of worked his way from the bottom to the top of democratic politics in the state of Texas and or wherever. Let's get a little timeline, shall we? Well, I'm really uh, glad that James started out talking about his origins as a teacher, right? Like in a very poor area. Um but he himself had a little bit of, his family apparently had a little bit of money? It did, but his dad lost it. And then I think there, he had the shame of his father's losing his stature. And I think he took that with him. Yeah, he was kind of, of a de- depression era child, right? Mm-hmm. Like his, okay. his dad had kind of taken it in, uh, taken a hit in the depression. And he ends up kind of bouncing around to a few different places, I felt like. Um, they're first elected to the United States House of Representatives, hence the pig sex story <laughs> in 1937. 1937, did he serve? Was he in the military at all? And he I got mean, a cushy job somewhere. He put not a distinguished uniform. record, 
A yeah, record that he left the states. It rather pales in comparison to Kennedy's, which was going to become a running, a running theme of his life. Yeah, he was, he was a lieutenant commander in the Navy Reserve, so okay. not exactly going to be, uh, you know, commanding a a destroyer somewhere. No so PC one hundred nine. Uh, so this was someone who really did sort of like we we here in the modern day era like politicians who are politicians from the first from the end of the day and people that never leave Washington D.C. Is he one of those creatures? First elected to the Senate in 1948. Yeah, I thought he was Speaker of the House. And then, well, he was he was. Uh, majority whip, and then he was majority leader. He was the Mitch McConnell of his day in the Senate. Who's the seems unnecessarily harsh to Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> and some would say unnecessarily harsh to Mitch McConnell. But they I don't think it's don't possible listen. to be too harsh to Mitch McConnell. No, <laughs> oh God, no! Not. Absolutely not. That masturbating turtle. <laughs> One of the things that I did want to point out, which I think points very early on to like very early political ambitions, and I think where he first cuts his teeth and and I think learns how how to be a political operator, right? You know, I do think that I agree with James that he's a, a natural politician, but I think he learns how to become a political operator as a legislative secretary in the U.S. House of Representatives to like his local rep like representative, and I mean that to be a, a legislative secretary during that time, like you have to know people, you have to know who to talk to, you have to know when to talk to them. It's, I think it's a, a really interesting that that's his entry point, um, and I think it's really telling of his future life, right? Because most of the people we're talking about are not that's not how they enter right, right. like that's, that's a lower point of entry than we're that this is like the guy who goes from private to general right like <laughs> most people don't have to enter at that lowest stage you know some right. of these people go right to elected office yep. some of these people get cushy appointments and then they go to elected office um you know he's he's really entering the the profession at, at the kind of the lowest common denominator level um and yeah, so I and I think that that sense of that sense that there's all these people who thought they were above him and now they're below him yes. was an incredibly motivating factor for him. Um, you know, the, the story that I've heard is like, like where what was his alma mater? It was like West Texas Teachers College or something like that. Southwest um, Texas Teachers College. Southwest <laughs> Texas. No fighting erasers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that basically he would go in and, you know, be like, yeah, I walked in my cabinet meeting. There's there's 10 guys from Harvard and 10 guys, guys from Yale and five guys from Princeton. And there's one guy from Southwest Texas Teachers College. And guess who's president? <laughs> <laughs> that uh, brings me to my next question. He made plenty of enemies. People looked down on him. People underestimated him. Was it because of his background, his quote, humble, close quote, background, or because he himself in style was rather unrefined and vulgar. I think, I really think it's gotta be both, right? I think that people just towered 
or felt like they could laud this, their educations and their background and their privilege over this like Texas bumpkin. And like, but Johnson is not the kind of guy who's going to let anyone laud anything over him for any reason. Well, first Uh, of all, he's just bigger than everybody. Yes. Yeah, good job trying to laud anything over him. You can laud next to him. You can (laughs) laud like across the room, but like you're never going to laud over uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, He was also, I think, you know, supremely self-confident. Uh, at least up until up until Vietnam, when he kind of, I think, goes through a little bit of a crisis of confidence. But up until that point, I think that at least the way he carries himself is he carries himself with an incredible amount of, of swagger and, and self-belief. Um, and ultimately, th- that was largely justified by his, by his own massive intelligence, um, that, that he, he was very um, bright. He just didn't care about the social niceties of it. He, he just he he was he wasn't going to play that game. Um, but in terms of just, I think that kind of his raw ability to read a situation, um, you know, he was the best in the business and he knew it. Um, it's also very ruthless and unethical. And I would guess for most of his congressional and Senate, uh, elections, a lot of them were stolen. Certainly one of them was just outright stolen, right? Like he called the precinct captain in the primary and was like, can you change this one to a nine to put me over the top? And the guy's like, okay. And, <laughs> and it was never a problem again. Yeah. <laughs> he, he originated the dick pick, but it was more like a live performance because he was constantly showing it to everybody. So he was the Louis C.K. of his time. Oh. Perhaps not a bad analogy. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, for those of you that don't know, that's one of the things Louis C.K. did is he would like to just whip it out as sort of a symbol of I'm in control of this writer's meeting. Allegedly. Allegedly. I'm just um, trying to picture the effort Johnson would have had to go through to to get a dick pic and like send it to someone. Because you have to go in that era, like, take, take the Kodak film to the developers. <laughs> like, or like get his own dark room and like the <laughs> Polaroids for you get the press corps, uh, you know, a photographer I mean, in the press corps. I like well, the I hired this courtroom Ill- illustrationist to give you a little sketch. Somebody in the National Archives was in charge of this shit. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> it's all marked classified, and it's just like, all right, here's your folder of uh, Johnson's Johnsons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think Apparently they keep them with Harding? Everyone. Keep them with the with the Harding letters, or do you think they're filed separately? <laughs> By the way, this is the episode we're going to save for your daughters, James, just so you know. (laughs) In a time of crisis. President Kennedy has been shot. In a nation divided. Hey, 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 LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? One man had the courage to show everyone the truth. Uh, Who's the president? Mr. President, why are we in Vietnam? Uh, this is why. This is Walter Cronkite, reporting from the White House Rose Garden, where the president has just pulled out his penis. From executive producer Harvey Weinstein comes the story of a man who wasn't afraid to be a massive Johnson. Starring Louis C.K. as Lyndon Johnson. It just seems like I'm never going to get out of Kennedy's shadow. I mean, I've had more sex accidentally than he had on purpose. 
and Sarah Silverman as Lady Bird Johnson. Oh my God, Lyndon, you can't give up. What if Benjamin Franklin had just given up instead of having sex with all those French women? You're right, Lady Bird. Right? Now go show this country your penis. With Jason Manzukis as Jumbo, the talking penis. Bro, we have got to get in on Vietnam. Now pull me out of your fly and let's get talking. And Andy Dick as Hubert Humphrey. They're gonna nominate a pig instead of me. Can you even believe it? Hey, hey can you put that thing away? I'm, I'm talking to you. Hello? Featuring Paul Rubens as Robert McNamara, Bill Cosby as Thurgood Marshall, Army Hammer as Bobby Kennedy, and Kevin Spacey as Earl Warren, with an all-new soundtrack by R. Kelly. Had your son zipped my fly. I'm pretty sure this is not a crime. This will be a great society, but not as great as this. The Biggest Johnson, directed by Woody Allen and Roman Polanski, coming this fall, whether you want it to or not. Um, but one question I have about uh, Johnson in the early years is his relationship with Lady Bird. Was it, uh, what I, I may be misremembering, so the uh, Americanist can correct me, but was she from a political family and Johnson looked at her almost like uh, Joe Kennedy did with Rose? Like, ah, I can, you know, if I connect myself with this woman or this family, I can move up the ladder. She was so much political. She did have money. She funded yeah. the radio station that they owned, which was a big help for him to gain power, her, her ownership of the radio station. And while he wasn't as eloquent as JFK, he certainly knew his way around the mic. Yep. Back to my question. So Johnson and Lady Bird was a love match, not necessarily a political dynasty. I mean, I know that she, like you said, right, her family is very wealthy um, and she funds her family, her family money funds his first political campaign. But yeah, I mean, they like. They was she kind love. of a Hillary was figure? Really or was she kind of a Hillary figure? Oh, she wasn't as ambitious as Hillary. Yeah. Okay. She was more of a Mary Todd Lincoln figure, not perhaps as neurotic, but she was, she brought money, she brought money and social prestige to this ambitious bumpkin. Yeah. Well, so then why Johnson? I mean, if she had money and prestige, did she just see that guy's going some places? I'm going to connect. Don't you think yeah. he probably she wasn't wrong until she, until she, until she get in. It's like, oh, well, might as well marry this son of a bitch. <laughs> I think I mean I like I think they just genuinely loved each other, right? Like they went out on a date and 10 weeks later he proposed to her. Or, like 
Hmm. And she said, yes, mm-hmm. that's even <laughs> more amazing. And speaking right? of the highways, wasn't she like, she was the first person to come up with the idea of sponsoring sections of highways and to beautify them. Mm-hmm. Let's beautify America. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems like more of an aesthetic than an environmental campaign. But it, yeah, yeah very much was. Almost it a is. little Jackie in her then in a little way. Right, like a little bit, like a little bit Michelle Obama, only because of the like, um, so I I only have Michelle Obama on the brain because I just cooked my favorite summer salad out of her cookbook, (laughs) which, but it has right this, this whole, um, I don't want to use the word sustainability, because right, sustainability is not really the word that ecology doesn't even come into play until Mm -hmm. 1970s getting back to the land perhaps or connecting with the common folk yeah yeah like an ethic of land i really like that okay oh yeah back being a being a a a rancher from texas Mm -hmm. west texas who is the dog lover was it ladybird or lbj or both of them Ooh, I actually don't know. I know they had a dog for the official White House dog was a stray. They picked up at a gas station with oh, the family at a family. Well, I mean, he was a rancher, so they were sure having lots of animals. He's a country boy. I mean, there wasn't one of the the pocketful stories around him was like they did a photo shoot with him on his ranch and he was hold up his the big ears of his beagle he wanted i was gonna say little beagle that was the beagle's name and they were lashed at him for abusing his beagle by tugging on his ears i think the stray was hubert humphrey though wasn't it (laughs) oh too soon too soon it is not it is too soon you leave hubert humphrey alone yeah yeah we're pleased as punch by that one So how much of his legislative uh, agenda then is Johnson and how much of it is him uh, reading the pulse of the mandate that he gets coming off Kennedy? And for that matter, how was there something in his congressional record before he became vice president? Because I'm sort of curious about what he was doing during Truman and Eisenhower years that set that in terms of like legislation passing or trying to be passed that set him up. Like I, he was pretty much a, a Southern Democrat in that, you know, they, they could sometimes be be dragged along with the progressive agenda and stuff. But a lot of times uh, he and his colleagues were kind of the one of the forces aligned against it. And like I said, I, I, I believe that he was instrumental in kind of watering down some civil rights legislation that happened beforehand, trying to and maybe that was OK, we can pass this if it's if it's watered down a little bit. But, you know, it was it was I think his legislative career was more defined by he was the guy who managed to lead and didn't really dive deeply into this is my ideology, but this is what needs to get done. So I'm going to make sure that it gets done. I'm going to find these votes. I'm going to get these people on board. We're going to keep the party together. And so more more kind of like, a, a you know, a party hack or a party whip than, you know, a, a crusader for a particular agenda. But that's what was... kills me about Johnson's legislative career is he he serves as whip, right? But I feel like he never vacates that role, even as he continues to move up party leadership. Like, he always acts like the whip. Like, 
whoever was whip when he was Senate majority leader had the easiest job because they didn't have yeah. to do anything. <laughs> he was doing both jobs. That kind of worked against him, though. When you talk about how, why Democrats don't run like, you know, why can't we get things done like LBJ did? Because LBJ made plenty of enemies. Yeah. He figured oh, yeah. when he ascended to the vice presidency, a job he and he hated, as most thinking people do, he met up with his former Senate colleagues, thinking that, you know, as president of the Senate, they would still do his bidding. And they said, uh, no, we're going to make up our own minds. Have a nice day, LBJ. We're not inviting you to caucus with us. Bye. <laughs> they were sick of his cajolery and his manipulation. Now, was that before he became vice president? That was uh, when he became vice president. When he became vice president. Um, what was what was he? So he was an op. He had to have been an oppositional figure during Eisenhower, right? Not blatantly, I would say he wasn't the Mitch McConnell of the Eisenhower years. Well, I mean, the Democrats era, have the House. The Democrats have most of the Congress during. The Eisenhower years. And it was a different era. It was really yeah. Newt Gingrich that started that congregation, that, that yeah. confrontational yeah. Uh, bridge yeah. burning. And we'll get to that. So. I mean, he needed, I mean, Eisenhower needed Johnson to get the highways built, did he not? Yeah, is nodding, everybody. Sure, right. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. he did. But I'm also Sorry. sure that that wasn't like a real difficult, you yeah. know, it's just a lot of the stuff that Eisenhower did in the domestic sphere was was not particularly controversial. That doesn't mean it wasn't meaningful, but it was something that, you know, the Democrats were like, you're not going to dismantle the new deal. Right. And he's like, no, I'm not. So they're like, okay, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to tinker around with education funding and I'm going to build some highways. And they're like, okay, sounds good to us. Let's do it. And NASA. Don't forget. I was going to say, I, yeah, there were a few uh, NASA joints in Texas, weren't there? Oh. <laughs> space Can't sensor. imagine why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I feel like that's LBJ at work right there. Um, you know, the he, Democratic votes were desperately needed for the creation of NASA, NASA and um, look how that went. Well, I mean, you also have, you're fighting uh, the Soviets to make sure they don't get space domination. So how difficult could it be to rally those votes for NASA? But it's also very classic Senate, like or classic Congress. Let's make sure every state has a little base here, a little development there, a little uh, research uh, lab, and that way, when we come to you know things like the defense budget, well, everybody's going to get a little piece of the pie that way, and we'll all be happy and have some jobs and have a little control. There was a great, I believe there was, he rather resented the rise of the Kennedys. I could see that. Because Can we he, talk about his relationship with the Kennedys? Oh, that's oh, an episode. Oh, there's a lot. Awesome. And, and The Boston-Austin connection, how it got made, and all, oh yeah. Isn't Here's that the J. last um, uh, VP ticket, President VP ticket, where they actually said, all right, if we put him on here, we can get the South. No, because that Gore, Gore and Clinton, yeah. they, they were not, they weren't sure they were going to get the Clinton, South at all. South, come yeah, on. Yeah, but by 1992, that was nowhere near a guarantee. 
Ugo. No, but with at least you had Kennedy who had the northern interest, and then he said, "Okay, let's put Johnson on the ticket, yep. so that way we could Carry get the southern, southern vote." Yeah, because you know the Democratic Party, oh so unlike today, was kind of a sprawling, great sprawling mess for so much of the oh. 20th century. But not at all like the big tent party that we are today. Yes, <laughs> that we <laughs> no, not a bit. It was never a problem again. But Johnson, as a phenomenally successful legislator, kind of resented the rise of this senator, who really didn't achieve very much during his time in the Senate, except look good, crack a few jokes, and charm everybody. They were not natural allies, Johnson and Johnson and JFK. Although well, they were like the be, they were the best of friends compared to LBJ and Bobby. Apparently, according to uh, Bobby, uh, JFK only offered Kennedy uh, offered Johnson the uh, vice presidency uh, as a formality, and everyone assumed and kind of hoped that he would decline. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, when did, did, wait, did Johnson run in '60? He yeah. said he wouldn't, but he put his name out of convention. It wasn't formally, it was really but yeah, late, they though. knew he wanted okay. yeah, and yeah, he got part of that was to keep him away from taking Kennedy's run. You see, Bobby went to LBJ's ranch in 1959 and extracted a promise from him that he would not run against so, Okay, so, so LBJ by that point was a was considered a serious a serious potential candidate oh yes and of course he broke that promise by putting his name out of the convention infuriating bobby i mean between bobby kennedy and lyndon johnson i mean these people were destined to hate each other i mean it was like written in the stars that these people were going to hate each other somehow they ended up in the same administration because that's just how life works sometimes but you know the guy with the ultimate little brother complex but with all the blue blood, you know, tradition in the world. And then Lyndon Johnson, the actual self-made man from who knows where Texas and the one guy with all the education and all the degrees and the other guy with, you know, all the, all the street smarts, all the street smarts and all the resentment of those people holding those degrees. Mm -hmm. It was, I mean, it was a Nora Ephron film for politics. Really, it was. <laughs> Political rom-com. Yes. I would watch that meet Hallmark you. movie where yes. Linda Johnson and Bobby Kennedy fall in love. <laughs> so what was he doing as vice president besides being two cars behind? Nothing. Oh. Too soon. Was that too soon? Really? Oh. <laughs> yeah, there's no magic bullet that's going to cure these uh, this oh, thick mercy. strain of humor. But um, Lyndon was kept really far out of the loop. Yep. And see, that's the inherent tension in a relationship between a president and a vice president. The vice president is a reminder of your mortality. And Kennedy had already had plenty of those. Although, actually, JFK. Uh, did make it a point to try to keep Johnson at least involved and busy, uh, if yeah. only because Johnson had been in D.C. Lo so long that he knew every reporter in town, and so if he wasn't busy, he would be uh, going around blabbing stuff. How much did LBJ know about, say, all the affairs and all the salacious stuff? 
probably as much as people knew about LBJ's affairs and salacious stuff. Ooh, let's <laughs> talk about LBJ's affairs and salacious oh, actually, stuff then. I have, hey. I have a great one for this. Uh, I just I just found this one out. Apparently, uh, Bobby had been conspiring with one of the editors at Life Magazine to publish a scathing expose about Johnson and all of his affairs. Uh, but it never came out because it was supposed to come out in November of 1963. Oh, <laughs> oh. Another conspiracy theory is born. One of LBJ's paramours was apparently uh, Nixon Bettenoir. How are you pronounce that? Bettenoir. His backstreet girl, so to speak, if you want to use film noir language. Ooh. Anyway, so what about this? Lady Paul. Was, I mean, she was one of the very few women in Congress when oh. uh, LBJ was serving. So she became his little protege, apparently. Mm. Uh, Must have come as a nasty shock to her husband, film a uh, multiple Oscar winner, Melvin Douglas. Oh. Oh. Oh yes. Oh, that was the the woman that uh, Nixon smeared Nixon. as a right, pink right down to her underwear, yes. and LBJ said, "Hell no, it's green." But... <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, a class all the way. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He might have, but history yeah. did not record it. Yeah. One other, one other quick question before we, because I think we're close to LBJ as president, but um, again. What was LBJ doing, if anything, in relation to the civil rights movement when LBJ was vice president? So what's, what's so funny is, again, like we like we had talked about, the Kennedys really kept LBJ busy by appointing him to all of these different commissions and presidential committees. Like he was the chairman of NASA and he was, and he was off on many like diplomatic missions and he was on the Equal right, Employment Board. It, exactly. And so one of the boards that he gets appointed to that the Kennedys, I'm sure, were just like, whatever, like that's not gonna go anywhere, was the Committee on Equal Employment Opportunities. Oh. Right. And and Johnson becomes uses this position really as a springboard to start advocating within the administration for civil rights, right? Like He's like, I'm on this board, and this is what the president asked me to do. And so and of course, he, he takes it way farther, though, and way more seriously than I think the Kennedys were really intending. I mean, they yeah, that's why Bo I think Bobby invaded a commission meeting and started yelling at everybody about how they were going too far and threatening the president's agenda because that was just Bobby. Yeah, Bobby. yeah I mean, and th they hired him to be the... Uh palatable choice to conservative southern democrats and yes he goes, he goes off and well, it, uh, makes a gettysburg memorial <laughs> state speech yes. about uh the importance of civil rights let us enumerate johnson's legislation triumphs like the golden age 64 to 65 sure so the we got rights act. yep the, so we got the the civil rights act of 64 and 65 and then the voting rights act of 65 if I recall, the, the Civil Rights Act of 64 was kind of like Johnson wasn't ultimately real happy with what it was. He felt like it got watered down. Yep. And that's kind of one of the things he talks about in one of his addresses is like, you guys dicked around for 13 months on this, gave me a bill that had the most important thing stripped out of it. You yep. bet, damn well better finish it, the job this time. Yep. Um, and then so the, the succeeding bills were stronger 
The Voting Rights Act, I think, is considered to be the most consequential of those bills, although subsequently large sections of it have been found to be unconstitutional. Um, at the time... But the, let's put that in quotes. Unconstitutional. unconstitutional. Yeah. Everybody Under, in podcast land, we're doing the air quotes around yes. unconstitutional. <laughs> Under That's current like jurisprudence. All of that is just the civil rights legislation. Just the civil rights, right. Then there's Medicare and Medicaid. Which Social Security. Much, yeah. Um, the Clean Air Act. Right. The great no, Clean Air Act of Nixon. I thought that was Nixon. No, yeah. Clean Air Act, the first one. Clean Air Act, Act 1. Act 1. Uh, okay. And the Immigration uh, Act of 1965. That was a big one that really, yeah. we were in the, in the, in the, Still in like the quota system, I think. Before yes, that, yes, we were. Yeah. Also, um, also FOIA. Ah, Freedom of Information Act. Okay. Oh, it was all of that under the umbrella of what we learned as the Great Society. In some ways, yes, but in some ways, the Great Society was even bigger than that because the Great Society included direct programs to create um you know more comprehensive unemployment assistance housing assistance assistance for single mothers with children but basically the first and so far only real attempt to create a welfare state in the united states yeah. and I, I think sometimes this gets portrayed as like oh well this is what led to the projects and then the projects became these terrible places and if we had never given people this government dependency this but no if you really look at the data you find that the amount of americans living in poverty decreased measurably throughout the Johnson administration and there afterwards until those programs were removed and yeah. then it shot way back up. It is a direct correlation. I mean, also appointing Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court. Yeah. An obvious choice, but an important choice to be sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that happened after he did get elected. Oh, I'm sorry, Chelsea. Oh, I was just going to say the, the speech in which he introduces the Great Society as a concept too, just so you know, that happens at the University of Michigan. You're welcome. Mm. Policy helped people. Policy made people's lives better. And that was the Johnson administration. Yep. Okay. Now, when it comes to government, they say you never want to see how the sausage is made. But let me tell you, you will never find legislative sausages like Johnson sausages. Johnson sausages are the biggest, tastiest sausages around. Stuffed full of civil rights with some zesty Texas barbecue. Johnson has the biggest sausage in D.C. Mm, this is pretty tough. Why, why is it staring at me like that? Mm -mm, that's the Johnson treatment. Every Johnson sausage is chock full of twisted arms. We shove that in-your-face flavor down your throat, stuffed with enough pork to serve up a great society. Give your kids a head start in their morning with Johnson's breakfast sausages. This is sending me straight to the John. Sun sausages. Don't bother shutting the door. Everyone will want to see your sausage. Oh, no, please. There are reasons we don't want to see how these things are made. <laughs> oh, sure you do. You get such a kick watching us stuff those pigs. What are you insinuating? Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> Got a thing for the pork ones, huh? What? Uh, uh, hey, no! Uh, I'm just pulling you leg. Why would you imply something like that? I just wanted to see you tonight. Let's pass on the pork sausage, shall we? Very well. 
Johnson doesn't only serve up domestic meat. Be the life of the party at your next cookout with our new hot and spicy Oriental Tonkin-style butter and bullets beef sausage. Oh, my mouth just exploded. <laughs> this sausage is nothing but secret ingredients. Oh, hell no. We won't eat this. When your tummy needs a feeling And you don't care how you get there When the end is more important than the means A plate of Johnson sausages will always get the job done Just don't ask what we grind into the machine Johnson So all of the, and again, a lot of the Great Society stuff, if I'm not mistaken, does happen after the 1964 election. And yeah. we've got to talk about the 1964 election because, first of all, in Barry Goldwater, the first seed of what we might call the modern Republican Party gets planted. The modern, I think, National Republican Party. The modern right? National Gold, Republican Party. Goldwater right. is a reflection of the Republican politics that we know today happening at the local level, which was very strong. Even extremism, extremism in the name of patriotism is not a vice and such and mm -hmm. such and such. Mm -hmm. But also, and for those of you listening to the podcast, September 7th, if I have my research correct, today... On this date in 1964, for the one and only time it ever ran on network television, the Daisy ad. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For those of you, this is an ad of a little girl pulling petals out of a daisy, then looking up, seeing a nuclear explosion happen in our eyes, and essentially saying, yeah, this is going to happen if this is what will happen if you elect Barry Goldwater as president. Only ran once. Everybody talked about it. Seemed to work. I mean, Barry Goldwater got absolutely pantsed in the 64 election. Yes, it he is. did. And it was 486 electoral votes to 52. Whoa. Which is funny. Did he also he, have 44 like states Canada... to 6. That was did he... <laughs> just an enormous landslide. Did he still have the, the Kennedy sympathy wins at his back, though? Yeah. Which is funny. You would think, because the moment that he signed that Civil Rights Act, you could hear the rumbling, everybody from the Southern Democrat Party rushing over to join even, the Republican Party. Well, well, Johnson himself said, I just signed away the Democratic Party for a generation, and boy, was he wrong about that. <laughs> but. Well, He's, what he said was he delivered the South to the Republican Party yes, for a long time. Yes, um, which he, which did. he was. Which he was right. <laughs> he was right about that. And, and actually, I think if you look at the electoral map from 64, it's fascinating because, okay, yep, so Goldwater that. wins his home state of Arizona. Congratulations. Okay. You passed the minimum bar to be a presidential candidate. <laughs> Al Gore did not. Sorry. And oh. then he won Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. Can't and I wonder why. when is the last time any of those states voted for a Republican candidate? Because I'm pretty sure well, that Arizona did. Georgia did. I mean, since or before? Before, before. 64. Before 64. Uh -huh. they were all when was the last time Democrat. any of those states had voted Republican? No. 
at a yeah, presidential a election because I'm pretty sure they never had. Never had. That's very true. I, mean, I think that's when Strom yeah. Thurmond changed parties. Mm-hmm. But something else was starting to happen <laughs> right about that time. The what Beatles. was it, Joe? The Beatles? <laughs> well, yeah, the Beatles, oh, yes. Elvis? No. Elvis was yeah, making Elvis, really Elvis. horrible movies by that time. What could have possibly the- interrupted the creation of the liberal paradise, Joe? We were on such a good roll. I well, you're the historians, y'all. So, because because it goes back to '64, right? Gulf of Tonkin. Okay, here's a provocative question: Was LBJ manipulated into when suckered into supporting Vietnam, or was it something that he kind of said, "You know, this has to be done"? I so think for, for those in the audience, it was Vietnam, is, is what Joe was alluding to. It was Vietnam, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the Vietnamese one. <laughs> um, I would okay. say... My take is that Johnson didn't have a distinguished service record in World War II. He didn't really do anything that you could consider military or military leadership uh, in a consequential way. He was a pretty much domestic guy through his time in Congress, right? He, he he does do a little bit of foreign stuff in terms of the diplomatic stuff as vice president, but like the major stuff, obviously he's pretty much kept hands off of. We talked about how he was bragging about having something to do with the Bay of Pigs when he absolutely didn't because he just wanted to make people think that he was doing something uh, important. <laughs> I think that, you know, this is again where I think Johnson in most things and the things that he had experience in domestic politics, getting things passed. He had an enormous degree of self-confidence. I think the foreign policy stuff, he kind of was like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. And I think that he certainly, he didn't admit that, but I think he relied really He relied very heavily on the advice of people he thought knew better than he did. The advice Uh, of McNamara, McNamara, the advice who who wasn't really a military guy himself. He was a Technicat Rand corporation. Yes. Yeah. Right. And this is and this is an interesting thing, because Kennedy, right, definitely felt like he did have the the beat of foreign policy. And I feel like he felt comfortable with the technocrat in the Defense Department because he felt like he could deal with actual defense related decisions. And he just thought, right, Robert, he's like, please make sure that, like, we don't use three different bolts for attaching our bayonets in the three different services. Please, let's save some money here. And so, yeah, McNamara, you know, has you know, a technocrat's approach to this. But I I think ultimately Johnson is basically saying, well, he's not saying, but he's kind of, this is what his strategy ended up being is I'm going to listen to the people I think know better about this and I'm going to follow their advice. And unfortunately their advice turned to be not very good. That doesn't absolve Johnson, right? Because Johnson ultimately was the president. He's got to make the choice. Um, But I think it explains why someone who I think was reticent and worried about like this doesn't seem like it's going so good this seems like it's uh not great for the united states and certainly not great for uh you know old mr johnson here why he kept going into it because i think his his generals and his you know administration said well we really can win this war if we get just a little bit more 
which of course is the cry of bureaucracies everywhere in all times since the beginning of bureaucracy. He, he got, I think he got suckered into it, not so much because manipulation, I think is a tough word, but I think, I think the people who were telling him that they thought they could win, thought they could win. And it's American hubris. I think all presidents since Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, up to Nixon felt like if America's at a war, we're going to win it. Yes. No one, America and, never lost a war. So we just could not, be, we didn't have a way to pull out. And I am old enough to remember news reports, you know, Walter Cronkite and David Brinkley and Harry Reynolds. And what you would see, particularly every Friday, were the number of North Vietnamese killed, as if that was the metric. Like the more bodies we stacked up, the more we sure should have been winning. Thank you for agreeing to meet with me, Mr. President. Why, if it isn't Daniel Ellsberg, that bright young fellow who wants us out of Vietnam even more than Senator Kennedy does. Have a seat, Danny boy. Thank you. Is that, uh, is that? Oh, yep, that uh, stone-faced Sanso Panza by my side is indeed J. Edgar Hoover in the prodigious flesh. Say hi, Jedger. Well, I'm not falling for that again. Am I under FBI surveillance? Hell, who is it nowadays? <laughs> That's a joke. Laugh, Jedger. Uh-huh. But I do get awful curious when a letter that reads like it was dictated by Bobby Kennedy is signed by someone named Daniel Ellsberg. Made me wonder, who is this Daniel Ellsberg hombre? Well, I... Was born in Chicago in 1931, mother dead, father still living. PhD in economics from Harvard, served in the Marines, worked in the Defense Department, transferred to the State Department, now employed at the Rand Corporation. Divorced, two children. Okay, so I am under FBI surveillance. Uh, don't soil your drawers, Danny boy. My amigo Jedger just did a little background check. I do have enemies, after all. Are you more worried about communists or Kennedys? There's no difference. <laughs> uh, ain't Jedger a stitch. Laugh, Jedger. Ah. Uh-huh. So, what's your problem with how I'm running this war zone? With all due respect, Mr. President, I believe the claims that the U.S. is winning the war are unduly... That is a nice suit. Um, thank you, Mr. President. Anyway, my own research indicates that the U.S. military has badly underestimated the North Viet... Uh, Mr. Hoover, the Secret Service has already searched me. Off the rack, Brooks Brothers, poorly tailored. Neither the comfort nor craftsmanship a Kennedy crony would demand. <laughs> Guess Bobby hasn't taken you shopping, at least. <clears throat> Proceed. Thank you. As I was saying, military intelligence has consistently downplayed the threat of Viet Cong infiltration. You know, in- that is one elegant coiffure, Danny boy. If it weren't for that big old honker, <laughs> you'd uh, fit right in with Kennedy's. I assure you, Mr. President, I am not... Mr. Hoover, why are you sniffing my hair? Star brand dandruff shampoo with hints of Washington smog. No salty sea air or woody essence that would indicate prolonged visits to an Oceanside Kennedy compound. Uh, No invites to Kennedy shindigs, eh, Danny boy? Damn shame. People tell me they're real hoops. Anyway, 
Finally, Mr. President, I have reason to believe that the North Vietnamese will launch an offensive around the Tet holiday. Did I ever tell you you're one handsome bastard, Danny? Frequently. Sir, the Tet holiday occurs in winter. No wonder you're divorced. I bet you got to beat him off with a stick. Mr. President, I'm not sure that's relevant. Get your hands off my belt buckle, Hoover. Genitals only contain traces of contact with one woman. No evidence of consorting with professional escorts. I better check his bunghole while he's got his pants down. Mm-hmm. Ooh, well, no! It has been kissed recently, but the lips are not Kennedy-shaped. He's not a spy for Bobby Kennedy Linden. Ah, so you uh, won't go share any sensitive information about Vietnam with New York's junior senator? How could I? You've been so busy having Hoover violate me, you haven't told me anything. Yeah, not much to tell, really. We're putting on a happy face for the public because we're about to get our collective asses handed to us. But I can't pull out without looking weak. And can I quote you on that? Hell, tell the goddamn New York Times for all I care as long as you don't go blabbing it to Bobby. As you wish, Mr. President. You bluffing about the press, ain't you? He'd better be. We've got the files from his psychiatrist's office. We'll leak them if necessary. Mr. Hoover, I have known you for 30 odd years. Some of them very odd, but you still find ways to surprise me. How did you become so good at blackmail, Jedgar? A lady never tells her secrets, Lyndon. Ha ha. Maybe it's a myth, but again, things we believe growing up that had it not been for Vietnam, the great society would have been planted and there would have been roots. But it was, and not just being in Vietnam itself, but the, not just the blood, but the treasure. Like Vietnam drained the money that should have been going to all of these other social programs. It diverted, you know, we, this was a time of prosperity, was it not? I watched Mad Men. I remember this, right? Well, um, it's not just a time of prosperity. You know, one of the things that I, as a, as a urban landscape, urban fabric buildings kind of person, Right. I think there is such optimism in the early 60s that we as a society can change people through their environment. Right. The place where they live. And and that kind of faith. Is really powerful and and doesn't ultimately work. Right. This is. Say that the 60s. uh, um were extremely turbulent time. It was a violent, a social upheaval and the the discord, what we're seeing now in our political discord and the the fighting and the divisions we have, I think we're really rampant in the streets in the 1960s as well. I mean, I think it was just as divisive in its own way at that time, not just Vietnam, but, you know, social divisions you know and again it leads me to ask how aware was lbj about you know what was going on in the streets what was going on in the culture you know this conversion to a youth culture in a way had the country had never seen before so well he had the coroner commission so he did try to respond and address and say, okay, what's part of this unrest? Yeah. He may not have liked the what the conclusion yeah. was of the commission was, but 
he did try something to at least also say try to uh put blame other than himself <laughs> well and i think but I, I think you're right sylvia in the language that you use right the kerner commission is a response and and i don't know that johnson or anyone in at the national level was really in touch with the kind of dissatisfaction i don't even want to use the word dissatisfaction because it's such a mild term dissent right like the the promise of the 64 civil rights act and then the fact that it was essentially a, a as james said an act that didn't go far enough to actually make an impactful difference in every, in in the everyday lives of especially like urban people or and that's also assuming that there were that there weren't people who were trying to impede whatever the yeah at the local level yeah yeah exactly right but so, i think this i think this there there's this moment right after the 64 act passed where you're like where where the democratic party i don't want to say the democratic party where people on the ground have enormous optimism for the future right oh we've finally been recognized we finally gained this enormous milestone we have something to show, but it's not affecting change in everyday lives. And, and that, that, mm, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, that dissonance. I think the, the, the political rights are important, but it, it, it doesn't directly translate into people actually living better lives. I think Johnson feels partly betrayed not i don't think he's justified in that belief but i think that was his reaction was that he's like look at what all i did for these people and this is how they repay me by yes writing. that was a very prominent Ooh. theme in his yeah, thinking yeah his i did so yeah. much for you his miss millie moment i've the done part, so much for you people and you've not done anything they, and me. so the paternalization <laughs> comes out at the end yes yeah but you're right and, james there's no there's no like economic, I don't want to use the word safety net, but there's no economic conditions to support the the political changes. We have a shift in attitude where it was mm -hmm. like, all right, we have MLK and we're all going to, you know, do uh, all this uh, passive resistance. We're not going to um, go, going with Gandhi versus the Black Panthers coming in and saying, yeah, we're tired of getting our asses kicked. We're going to kick some ass back. There's almost the sense of this. On the one hand, you sort of these things sometimes take time, even after you pass legislation, because the legislation needs time to actually be enacted, along with just we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know that we didn't know that we should not have been accusing the soldiers of the abuses in Vietnam when it was really, you know, because we didn't understand what PTS, PTSD was. We didn't understand that they were getting orders. We didn't understand just, we just didn't understand, you know, we just didn't understand the plight of the Vietnam veteran, which we do now. Um, you sort of see, I think with things like the infrastructure bill going, it's, it's just starting to roll out y'all like you know like well, you, hopefully you'll see the effects of it but so in the 60s i don't want to say immediate gratification but there was it just maybe it was naivete maybe because of what happened in the 60s we are now looking at 
let you know what happens with what the after effects of it and at least some at least some in the culture are saying you know this is going to take time because we also know there are reactionary forces which leads to the question and it sounds like the answer is both but let me ask it anyway when lyndon johnson says if elect if if nominated i will not run if elected i will not serve or was that pat paulson anyway um but when he says i will not run is it because the politician in him says i'll never win or is it the person in him that is so guilt-ridden that he just feels like i can't i mean to do so would be destructive well, there's a fact that his, he got his ass killed. handed to him in the New Hampshire primary in early 68. I think he lost to... And that was before Bobby came in. Yeah, right. he, he lost to Eugene McCarthy. Right. Um, and, or maybe he maybe he didn't lose, but he, like... He got away. It was much closer than anyone. Right, like, if, if yeah. you're a sitting president and you're in a competitive primary, um, that's, that's not a good sign. Um, uh, 49%. Johnson to 40 percent uh McCarthy which is yeah. way closer than it had any right to be right so I I think I think it really was that he felt like he couldn't win yep. and I think he didn't want to he didn't want to lose I feel I feel like once once he crossed that bridge and said okay I Lyndon Johnson cannot win another term as president his next thing was what can I do to try to save as much of my legacy as I can in the la- the time that I have remaining and he felt like the thing to do at that point was to what he felt was nobly take himself out of the running and then spend the rest of his administration trying to negotiate peace terms with the North Vietnamese, to which he had some level of success. As if, we now know. If yep. the Nixon administration hadn't stabbed him back. Yep. Nixon, Nixon sabotaged it, as we now know. What? Next you'll tell me Reagan sabotaged that all in of course not, Sylvia, because it was never a problem again. Uh, <laughs> crazy talk. I'm sorry. It was crazy talk. Lady Bird? What do you want, Lyndon, dear? What do I want? <laughs> what do I want? You know what I want. Oh, Lyndon, you are already the second most powerful man in the country. I don't see why you have to keep going. Damn it, Bird, you know why. I've dreamt of being president since I ran for student council in grammar school. I fought and I scraped my way to the House, then the Senate, and now I'm Senate Majority Leader. And the people love you. The people fear me, Bird. I walk the halls of Congress and powerful men kiss my ass, but it's not enough. I want the presidency, and by God, I'll get it. I even got the initials, just like FDR. LBJ will be on everybody's lips. Gosh, that'd be cool. To be known just by your initials? Who are you, kid? I'm John Fitzgerald Kent, uh, uh, JFK. And I'm going to shake this town up. My daddy told me so. Don't make me laugh. What do you know about politics, kid? You're as green as a calf in spring. I may not know much yet, but I am the new America. Oh, my. Oh, this handsome young man is going places. Damn it, Lady Bird, don't you fall for that. Too late. The country is swooning for the fresh new face of the 60s. It's rock and roll in miniskirts and Camelot. <gasps> oh, <laughs> oh, no. Lyndon, let the boy speak. 
Now, Nick, there ain't no way some pretty boy rich kid can kick my ass. Look here, Sunday boy. It's true. It's true. The crowd has made it clear. The president must be handsome on TV. A law was made a distant moon ago here that civil rights shall never be discussed. But my Harvard charm will help blacks overcome here in Camelot. Camelot. There may have been a crisis in October. The Cuban crisis soon will be forgot. My smile in Maryland will be all that you remember of Camelot. 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 This is supposed to be my turn. Oh, be real, Daddy-o. Liberals hate you. Unions hate you. Uh, be nice and help me get the Southern votes. And uh, maybe you can be vice president. Just think, I'm the first president born in the 20th century. This is a new era. We'll inspire a generation. Mr. President, we've got this little Southeast Asian country that's causing a bit of trouble. Eh, tiny backwater nation shouldn't be too hard to control, Secretary McNamara. But the Viet Cong and the Chinese. So many big plans. We'll go to the moon. Nothing can stop me. I will ask what you can do for your country in Camelot. Hey! You've been shot. If ever I would shoot you, it wouldn't be in summer. What the fuck? Oh, Lyndon, you know what this means? You are the president now. This is what you've dreamed of your whole life. You have all the power you've been grasping for for decades. What will you do with it? Um. I'm going to carry on this fine young man's legacy. What? I'll take on all dear Sonny Boy or JFK's civil rights programs. Oh, but that's going to damage you politically. Well, what the hell is the presidency for? I'll forge the great society. I'll, I'll sign the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, food stamps, education and housing bills, uh, civil rights, job corps, the VIS program, environmental protection... NPR. All the way with LBJ. All the way with LBJ. All the way with Nothing can stop. I'm on top of the world. I, I'm, I'm declaring a war on poverty. Sir, first you have to deal with the mess in Vietnam. It's getting out of control. Oh, uh, uh, so we will uh, escalate our troops. We should be able to stop those communists. So, what's the view from the top like, dear? Have we all, each of us, done all that we could? Have we done enough? I'm going home, bird. Are we closing the casket on LBJ here? Oh. I've got a good one. So my understanding is that after Nixon's inauguration, so Johnson had given up smoking um, on the advice of his doctors. 
uh, basically they had like, a heart attack. Yeah, he yeah he, he had a heart attack. Sixty cigarettes. Showed them, showed them the scar. There's another scar mm-hmm. that he showed about his sternum. Yep. So after uh, you know he gets off, he he gets onto Air Force One because you know he's, he gets Air Force One. I think for a while, if not the rest of his life, um, and he starts he pulls out a giant Cuban cigar. Lights it up, starts smoking it. Probably stole it from Kennedy. I bet Kennedy had a bunch in the in the <laughs> Oval Office desk, and he's like, "These are mine now." Starts smoking it. His daughter, like, whips it out of his hands and says, "Like, Dad, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself." And he's like, "I raised you girls. I've been president of the United States. Now it's my time." And <laughs> basically, that was the start of a series of incredibly self destructive behaviors yep. that would leave him dead. I think before the end of 1973. Yes, but I also, right, same I, week as Truman, if I recall, or within the same month as Truman, yeah. at least, you know. Right, and I think one of the things that we haven't touched on as much in this podcast that I think we will, now that we're getting more into the modern era, um, I think the presidency changes Johnson. I mean, he emerges from the presidency depressed, yeah. right? For the first time, this man who was bigger than anyone or anything in the country he feels small and defeated and that shook him i think it killed him i think it literally killed him like in like other than presidents who literally died in office i think the presidency killed johnson perhaps more than anyone else yeah and i think we don't acknowledge that as much as we ought all right so we were we were we we hustled to get the lbj discussion in and we certainly have and again i mean the the a lot lots of contradictions but for the forces of good and um yeah i mean it's he's his legacy is so complicated and he himself is so complicated i don't think you'll ever really you can't pin him down and and also just kind of the mixed nature of his motivations like you know, he wanted to be the greatest and maybe that seems like a self-indulgent impulse, but like, if you're the greatest for good, is that okay? Like, I don't, I, it's, it's really, like, ultimately I, I will argue, and it is, is my contention that, that Johnson's, what he does in, in the realm of public policy, since it really couldn't have been done by anyone else, as far as we could tell, because no one else has done it, um, is, is, is remarkable and is, is a long lasting legacy of good that continues to save Americans' lives. But the, the Vietnam issue, is, and, and part of it is because it's, it's how scarring Vietnam ended up being. You know, it's one thing if you lead the America American into a disastrous you. war, yeah. he's not the first person to do that and he was not the last. Um, but, you know, ultimately I think the scars of Vietnam are going to be with us for longer than the scars of it, it's where the ideal of America um, and the American century takes a hit yeah. that it in our it never recovers from unless you believe it so hard that it warps into something else and in some ways it's like it's kind of like my student loans and that it's this debt that he owes and it just <laughs> keeps going up and up and up because the interest on it continues to grow um <laughs> and and I don't know that it's it's it obviously he can't his legacy is what it is. Um, we can say that, you know, the choices he made made sense at the time, but it, and, and I think that there, that's a defensible position, but the result of his actions um, in terms of escalating the Vietnam war really rendered, you know, the American soul in some ways that it's difficult to kind of heal those wounds. 
You know, it's it's almost like he horcruxed us, a la Voldemort. But I'll also say, James, like one of the, everything that you're saying, to me, one of the things that is so, I think, impactful about assessing Johnson's legacy is he's one of the, so many times in, in this podcast, we have talked about presidents who seem bigger than themselves, right? they seem superhuman or godlike or right we put them on a pedestal whereas johnson because of his flaws and his failures and his tragic kind of end he's a very relatable very human character that i don't think we get a lot with our presidents um certainly and and certainly with the i'm sorry just certainly with the impact of time because again for those of us that grew up, I think again the reputation of Johnson was this was kind was a villain, and now we're kind of looking back and going, it really again more really a classic tragedy like done in oh, by yeah. his own foibles and his own flaws and his own weaknesses. And perhaps we yeah. we see him more accurately because no one is rushing to claim his legacy. Well, you know, I, whereas the right tries to claim yeah. Reagan's legacy, they want to paper over the complexities and the wrongs of Reagan's administration, which I'm sure we'll get to and enumerate in, in vast detail. Um, but, you know, they want to focus on, oh, Reagan won the Cold War, Reagan turned the economy around, blah, 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 blah. And I think for the left, you know, to some extent, we, we go back to Roosevelt. We say the yeah. New Deal and and we won World War II and we beat fascism. Mark Kennedy. And, yeah, uh, or Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy for kind Johnson's. of paper over the complexities of those figures. No one's rushing to claim Johnson and saying Johnson is the archetype of what we want to see. In, in part because of how it ended. And honestly, mm-hmm. I think you go back to Chicago 68. That's sort of the yes. beginning of the end of or, or the New Great Deal as. Yeah. Or maybe, I mean, if you think was Kent, no, Kent State was in the 70s, sorry. Yeah, yeah. the 1970s. Well, then in 68, yeah. King's assassination, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, Fred Hampton's in 69. I mean, there's a lot of like shit going down. Now, if if you want to get me enrolled, I know you guys are trying to get me enrolled in the Johnson killed JFK conspiracy. Johnson killed Bobby Kennedy. I'm in on that. (laughs) 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 You were going to say so many people wanted to kill Bobby that Johnson is only one of the usual suspects. He was in line. And James, it's it's not like Voldemort became president. Nah. Oh. oh, we go from, you know, Johnson in some ways becomes an American villain, a presidential American villain. Nixon certainly lost of, at least for certain, at least for certain groups for certain different reasons. So American villainy in the White House, and we'll get to Richard Milhouse Nixon next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, 
visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.